Hello, everyone. Um, my name's Connor, um, and I have a great privilege of, of getting to uh, preach from, from those passages. Um, how good is that Isaiah 53 one? I think, I think it's amazing. Um, I'm going to pray, and then, and then we can get stuck in. Father God, I, I thank you so much that uh, despite the weather, uh, despite uh, the, the hecticness of our weeks or whatever they, they have looked like, uh, Father, that you have made a way that we can be here tonight together as, as your family, as your people. I pray, God, that right now you would give me a calmness, um, that you would give me a confidence in, in your word uh, so that I might speak clearly um, and that I might uh, grow your people so that I might become more like Christ. And I pray this in his name. Amen. All right, who, who loves moving? Who likes moving houses? Put your hand up. Well, let me phrase it better. Who hates moving? Yeah, that's better. I, I can't stand moving sometimes. It is such a headache. But one of the things that I, I kind of like about moving is, is Ikea furniture, right? Now, it's good in parts because sometimes I feel like this when it's sitting down like this. I feel like, hello. I feel like this. I don't always assemble Ikea furniture, but when I do, I consider myself a master carpenter. Yeah, you guys over there. <laughs> but sometimes when we build Ikea furniture, it doesn't always go the way that we plan. Right? Sometimes you open up the pack and you start to build and then you go along and you're like, well, me, because you don't have Ali as your wife. And I'm like, Ali, where's this screw? And then she'd be like, why don't you just check the pack? And I'm like, no, they've sold us short. They haven't given us the screws. They've given us an incomplete pack. We need to go back and get a refund. This is ridiculous. This is, this is frustrating, right? Have you had that experience with Ikea furniture? Yes, we all have. And so the question I'm asking is, what could make a difference? I think preparation can make a massive difference. Preparation for Ikea furniture can make, you know what I could do? I could get all the screws out. I could put them in a nice pile over here, and then I could get all the bits of wood and put them over here, and all the whatever else you use and put it over here, right? <laughs> and I'd be, I'd be good to go. And if, if I had a problem, I could sort it out. I think preparation can make a massive difference. It could be the difference between beautifully baked brownies and a kind of hard black rock cake. Uh, it could be the difference between failed assignments and an assignment that passes, the difference between structurally sound shelves or a frustrated Connor rocking in the corner, right? <laughs> I mean, even my old soccer coach, he gave me these five Ps. Proper preparation prevents poor performance. Or maybe, have you heard these words? By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. Even the Scouts motto, does anyone know the Scouts motto? Be prepared, right? That's it. And this, this is what we see in our passage tonight. We see Jesus continuing to prepare the apostles for his departure. And so tonight, we're going to re-enter the scene from last week where Stefan took us through the Last Supper. And we're going to rejoin the apostles as they recline at the table in the upper room and have just eaten the Passover meal. Today, we become privy to one of the last private conversations that Jesus has with his followers that starts in the upper room and then it ends in the Garden of Gethsemane just before Jesus is about to be betrayed, before he's about to be arrested and then sent to be crucified. Now, I wonder, what would you have said to the apostles in this situation? How would you prepare these guys as their friend their teacher, their Lord, and their leader leaves. Well, tonight we're going to see how Jesus prepares them. And we also get a little bit of a glimpse of what he's preparing them for. So you're going to see this coming up on the screen again. And the passage from Luke chapter 24 
uh, 22, 24 to 46, I've, I've broken up into three parts, right? Uh, the first thing I want to do is I want to spend a bit of time looking at what Jesus is preparing them for. And that's going to be in verse 31 through to 38. And then after that, we're going to spend some time looking at two ways in which Jesus prepares them. The first one is at the top, uh, yeah, verse 24 to 30. And the second one is 39 to 46. So that's how we're going to do it, right? So let's go. So first, Jesus gives us a bit of an insight into what he's preparing the disciples for. And there are two dangers that are coming their way. The first is this spiritual warfare. So read with me from verse 31. Jesus is saying, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny three times that you know me. Luke gives us this, this picture of a spiritual attack, right? Satan would like to go after Peter, similar to how he went after Job in the Old Testament. Satan wants to sift Peter like a grain in a sieve as he picks apart the head. He wants to pick Peter apart. He wants to turn his faith to chaff. This is a, a terrifying thing for Jesus to say. But out of love and concern for those who are his, he wants us to know that this is the reality for Peter, for the apostles, and for Christians today. Even Paul, in, in one of his letters to the Ephesians, he says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the, heav in the heavenly realms. This is the battle for disciples of Jesus. And as the narrative continues here in Luke, we see that, that even Peter, arguably one of the most zealous disciples, falls in this battle as he denies Jesus three times. But it is only a fall because Jesus intercedes and prays for Peter. And as a result, Peter does turn back and we see that in the early church, he strengthens. He goes on to strengthen his brothers. But this is the first danger, right? This is the first danger coming their way. It is this spiritual battle. The second one is re the rejection that they will face. So read with me from verse, verse 35. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, And he was numbered with the transgress transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Now, on first reading, it kind of seems like Jesus is condoning violence. It's like Jesus is saying, Your future is going to be so crazy that you are going to need swords. You're going to follow the way of the sword. It looks like that, right? But when we flick back to Luke chapter 10, that's where we see Jesus first send them out. And he sends them without purse, without bag, or without sandals. But, but now he's saying, take a purse, take a bag, and make sure you even have a sword. And so the question that I think we should ask is, well, what's changed here? What is the difference between when he first sent them out and now? And I think the difference is, is Jesus' departure and the cause of his departure. Right, you might not have picked it up, but he quotes Isaiah in there. 
All right? He, he's saying uh, he was numbered the, trans- the transgressors, and I tell you, this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. He's quoting Isaiah because Jesus is making it clear that the world has made its mind up about who he is. Jesus is rejected. He's persecuted and he suffers. And so I don't think Jesus is saying or condoning the way of the sword. I don't think Jesus is saying, yes, get those two swords and let's go to war, right? I think what Jesus is doing is he's using the swords as a symbol. He's saying, you need to be prepared for what is coming your way. Because their future, the future of the apostles will include persecution, suffering. And in some cases, these guys are going to be hunted. Jesus is saying, be prepared to be rejected and persecuted, just as I was rejected and persecuted. So that's the second danger coming their way. It is this rejection and persecution that they will face. This, this is kind of, this is pretty heavy stuff, right? This is, this is full on for the apostles to be facing. I mean, the only reason I needed to be prepared with my Ikea furniture was so that I wouldn't go crazy. But these guys are facing spiritual warfare and then worldly rejection. I asked you guys earlier, like, what would you say to prepare the apostles then? What on earth would you say now? How would you prepare the apostles for something like this? I've got no idea. But of course, our Lord Jesus does. Jesus has two things, I think, to teach them. Two things to learn that will shape their character as they prepare for Jesus' departure. The first one uh, is from verse 24, and it's this. It's through knowing what true greatness is. Through knowing what true greatness is. So verse 24 says, A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be considered the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now this little bit here, I think it's, it's quite telling of, of the disciples because just before this, Jesus has just announced his betrayer. They're sitting in, in the upper room having their Passover and Jesus has just announced his betrayer, the one who's going to hand him over to be crucified. I mean, this is massive, and it kind of looks like the apostles are concerned, but then it just flips, and they get into this dispute about who is the greatest. Who's going to be the number one in the kingdom? This is ridiculous. But what's more is that this isn't the first time they've had this dispute. Earlier in Luke, we see the exact same thing, where they have this dispute over who is going to be the greatest. I'm just kind of like, Peter, John, guys, what is going on? How is this what you're worried about in this situation? But as I was reading, I I needed to realize that actually maybe we shouldn't be so quick to throw stones here. Because I think we, like the disciples, we also see greatness as being number one. 
as being the top dog. You know, being the greatest means having the most power, having the most authority. Being the greatest means ruling or, or, or being the one sitting at the table. And I think this is kind of what we see, right? The example Jesus uses is the kings of the Gentiles, but our world rulers, these people who lord it over people, who exercise authority and call themselves benefactors. This is greatness, right? Well, notice what Jesus says. You notice how he doesn't actually answer, he doesn't say, actually, yes, Peter, you were the greatest. But instead, he redefines greatness in a way that is as, as radical as it is wise. Because Jesus says, you are not to be like that. You are not to be like those guys. What Jesus does is he subverts the meaning of greatness. He completely redefines it. It's kind of like, I imagine him, he's on the phone to the Oxford Publish, Dictionary Publishers, and he's like, guys, you've got it wrong. That's not what greatness is. It's not about being number one. Jesus is redefining greatness here. And he's saying that it is found in humility and service. Imagine if that was the definition of greatness. But why is Jesus telling the disciples this? How is this preparing them for his departure and for those dangers that we talked about earlier? Well, look what he goes on to say in verse 28. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Right, Jesus is acknowledging the loyalty and the allegiance of his followers. He sees that, that regardless of the trials and the troubles that they have faced, they have stood by him. And so Jesus rewards this with, with leadership and, and authority in the kingdom. But my mind kind of just jumps straight away to, to heaven, to, to the coming kingdom, right? But I don't think Jesus is talking about just that. I think he's, he's, he's talking in the present tense. Jesus is preparing them for the, for the very near future building of his church the church that these apostles are going to be leading. So the question, well, what is their leadership going to look like? Well, it isn't going to be like those Gentile kings. It will be one of true greatness. It'll be a leadership of, of service and humility. That is, is what's going to ch- shape the church. And I, I find this unreal because like, remember where we are. Jesus is moments away from his his death, his crucifixion, like one of the most horrible ways to die, in the midst of his anguish and his pain. And this is, this is what he's able to think about. He's able to say beyond this, and he's setting up this brand new church that's going to have its tone set by these apostles. And it's going to be one of, of true greatness. But it will be a church, let me affirm this, it will be a church that continues into eternity where it will be a kingdom of fellowship and acceptance. A kingdom, therefore, where pride is not welcomed, where selfishness and greed are excluded. A kingdom where there will be eating and drinking in the presence of our Savior. So Jesus is preparing his apostles for his departure by teaching them how to lead the church with true greatness. That's the first thing. 
But church, here is, I think, here is how I think this needs to land in our lives. I think we need to see this definition of greatness as the proper definition of greatness. I think we need to catch ourselves when we start celebrating or over-celebrating those who are the top dog. I don't think we can just leave this as this kind of floating concept that's nice out here, that's a really good idea. I think when we think of greatness, we need to remember Jesus' words here. We need to remember that, yes, he's speaking to the apostles and, and the way in which they are to lead. Greatness is found in humility and service. And so, for us, as part of the church that those apostles began building all those years ago, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we too must seek greatness in the way that Jesus teaches. And so I ask you guys, you know, when you're at work or in those leadership roles or in those relationships that you have with people, be the humble servant. Be the humble servant. And here's something that I've, I've tried to memorize in my, in my thinking this week. Just when I catch myself not thinking like this. Heaven has no need for those who are great in the world's eyes. Heaven has no need for those who are great in the world's eyes. So that's the first one, right? First way Jesus prepares them. And the second way is uh, through modeling faithfulness as expressed in his prayer. So read with me from verse 39. You can come on the screen, please. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. All right, so the Passover meal has just ended, that conversation is start to take a bit of a new turn, and they're out of the upper room. And Jesus with the 11 disciples are now uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the immediate instruction from Jesus to his disciples, pray. Right, the disciples, they've had a long day. The events and the things that have, that have been happening um, have kind of taken their toll. They are understandably exhausted from sorrow and have fallen asleep, as it says in verse 45. What does Jesus do? He prays. The whole situation Jesus chooses to be in is so intense. He is so aware of what is coming that, that Luke says his sweat was like drops of blood. Jesus' emotional state was so intense that his sweat beads kind of multiplied and grouped together and then fell off his face onto the earth. We see this kind of human side to Jesus here. This this vulnerability, this fear, this anguish. And in this, he would ask God to remove the cup, the task of suffering, the fate of facing God's wrath. He would ask to remove it from him. The situation is heavy. They all understand what is to come. And what we see here are two different responses. To the apostles falling asleep, 
that Jesus claimed. I've heard it once said that the Bible could be summed up as a story of two gardens, right? The first garden being the Garden of Eden, and the second garden being the Garden of Gethsemane. In Eden, you have Adam and Eve. In Gethsemane, you've got Jesus. In Eden, you have Adam and Eve who took a fall. In Gethsemane, you have Jesus who takes a stand. In Eden, God seeks Adam. In Gethsemane, Jesus seeks God. In Eden, Adam hides from God. In Gethsemane, Jesus prays to God. The difference between the, the, the two is what Jesus prayed. Yet not my will, but yours be done. What a great prayer. Imagine the faith, the dependence, the trust that Jesus has in his heavenly Father to pray a prayer like that in his situation. But again, we ask, how is Jesus preparing his disciples here? How is he preparing them for, for the future? Well, Jesus is the model. Jesus is the model that they are to follow. In a moment of crisis, Jesus turns to prayer. In a moment of pain and anguish, Jesus openly shares his vulnerability with God. In a moment of temptation, Jesus seeks God's will above all else. Jesus, the model, is the one that their disciples are to follow, to completely submit to the will of the Father. When Jesus returns to his rightful position at the right hand of the Father, the disciples are to follow this model. They too must pray that great prayer of, not my will be done, but yours. The apostles must have that same faith and dependence and trust in their heavenly Father to pray a prayer like that. So Jesus prepares his apostles for his departure by teaching them to be, to be faithful to God as expressed in prayer. So here, here are the ways that I think this lands in, in our lives. Number one, two ways I've got. Number one, pray so that you will not fall into temptation. I mean, I know that there are so many things that are happening in our lives. So many things that, that tempt us or distract us and try and take us away from God's ways. There are so many things that, that kind of overwhelm us, that, that disorient us, that conflict us. It's, it's kind of like we've got this this internal monologue inside us. You know, I, I do want to follow God's way. I do want to live for him, but, but then I don't want God's will to be done. But, but then I do want God's will to be done. But then I don't, but then I do. But, but pray. Pray. The proper response is prayer. When you don't know what the next step is, pray. You guys know that I love my quotes. Here's this one. Since God's sovereign hand can't be thwarted, ditch your fear of wandering irrevocably off the path of his will. Stop fretting that you've rabbit trailed beyond the bounds of providence. Plan, obey biblical principles, seek the counsel of others, bathe it in prayer, then make a decision. Don't worry if God isn't calling out turn-by-turn directions along the way. Just love him with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind and strength. That is your true north. Pray so that you will not fall into temptation. 
And the second thing is this, is pray like Jesus. Church, we can learn so much from the way that Jesus prays. I challenge you, go through the New Testament or the Gospels and have a look at Jesus' prayers. And prepare to be amazed. There's one thing that I notice in this one. The openness and the vulnerability that Jesus brings to God. He seems to be more than comfortable sharing the deepest anguish and pains of his heart with his Father. And even though Jesus asked that this cup might pass by him, there is no faltering in his commitment to God's will. For me, sometimes when I feel this this doubt or or this distrust in following God's way, the last thing that I'd want to do is bring that to God. It's embarrassing. I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I would ever even think of doubting God's way. How, How evil of me. I wouldn't bring it to God. But right here in this passage, Jesus' example tells me that I can. And it even goes on. In fact, God cares. When you pray like this, God cares and he offers strength for those who come to him in that way. Pray like Jesus. So we've seen, we've seen the two dangers that are in the future of the apostles, right? The spiritual war and the, the worldly rejection that they're going to face. We've seen two ways in which Jesus prepares the apostles. Firstly, through redefining greatness. And secondly, by setting a model of faithfulness as expressed in prayer. But there's one more thing, one more comment that I want to make from our passage. I mentioned it very, very briefly earlier on. But in verse 37, Jesus quotes Isaiah Isaiah chapter 53. And I think there are two reasons for this, right? The first one that, that I already said uh, is to make it clear that Jesus is the rejected suffering servant. And if he's the one to be rejected, then his followers will, be, will, will face the same thing. But I think the second reason it is included is, is a very wise thing that Jesus does. Because Isaiah would be in the minds of the apostles, right? And so what Jesus is doing here is, is it's like he's giving, him, giving them this keyhole into Isaiah, into Isaiah 53. And so then we, as readers and as the apostles, they would be thinking of everything that follows this from everything that happens in the garden, from all the trials and the beatings that happened before, to the cross where Jesus is hanging on the cross. They understand this in light of Isaiah. And so we need to see this as well. We need to understand that, that although Jesus exhorts us to true greatness, like we've been talking about, Although he's shown us the model of faithfulness as expressed in prayer. Like it says in Isaiah, we actually all, like sheep, have gone astray. And we've each turned to our own way. The apostles could not get it right. And we cannot get this right. We do fail. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus alone is the one who is truly great. Jesus alone is the one who is perfectly faithful. And so just as Jesus intercedes for Peter in prayer, Jesus intercedes for you and I by his suffering service on the cross. Jesus is pierced for our transgressions and is crushed for our iniquities. Those who put their trust in Jesus have someone at the right hand of the Father who intercedes for them. 
someone who acts as a mediator between us and God and makes you righteous before him. I want to read um, Isaiah 53. And I want to ask that if you, if you can, if you can, that you would just maybe close your eyes or spend some time just thinking about the words that I read. I'm going to read from verse, verse 7. Speaking about Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light, he shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Earlier I asked what you would have said to the apostles in this situation. What would you be able to say to them to prepare them for Jesus' last week on earth? I wonder if if you could have imagined saying anything as rich and as full as Jesus has said here. Good Father, we thank you so much for what you have achieved for us through your son Jesus on the cross. We thank you, God, that though we are the transgressors, though we are the sinful, though we are the fallen, that you would send Jesus to die in our place so that we might be made right with you. Father, I thank you so much for your son Jesus. And I thank you, God, for the way that in his last week he was so wise in the way that he taught and spoke. I thank you, Father, that in this day now, we get to reap the fruit of your people and of your church meeting together all those years, all these years later. I pray, God, that you would help each one of us here to understand what true greatness is. I pray, God, that you would help each one of us here to know what it is to be faithful. And I pray, Father, that none of these things would just come in one ear and, and, and exit through the other, but I pray, Father, that you would help us to transcend that journey between head and heart. I pray, Father, this would be something that, that leads to real change and to a more Christ-likeness in your people. And I pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.